the Appendix N Podcast, Episode 31, The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien, Part 3. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. Once upon a time, there lived a man named Gary Gygax, one of the creators of Dungeons & Dragons. In the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, Gygax included a list of books and stories to be inspirational reading for those who would slay dragons and recover ancient mountain halls of their fathers. Here on the Appendix N Podcast, we sift through the trinkets and the baubles to find shining jewels of legend and present them in a format that you can listen to on your drive to work. Every episode of Appendix N will feature a different story or collection of stories. Together with my co-host Jeff Wickstrom and my guests, we lay bare the dusty secrets of these forgotten tomes and speculate how they may have influenced the first edition of the world's most popular role-playing game. If you are reading along with us and would like to send us your comments, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming stories. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. With me for the final chapter of our epic Hobbit discussion, as always, my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. It is always a pleasure to be here. And by here, I mean sitting in my basement with headphones on. And we have assembled an expert panel of guests tonight, the most guests we have ever had on the show at one time. Let us hope I don't lose my mind. We have Jeremiah McCoy. Hey there. We have Peter Foxhoven. Hail and hearty, welcome. We have Chris Constantine. Good to be back. And we have Robert Wolf. Hello, hello. As I'm as I'm staring at my Skype window, your your icons are just sort of sort of randomly rotating around the window. It's it's very hypnotic. I hope I don't go into a trance. That's why we're here. To hypnotize you. Yeah, that is that is podcasting gold, is what that is. Okay, so uh, as the as the appetizer for our final discussion, I have picked the short story uh, "Farmer Giles of Ham," which was written in 1947 and published uh, 1949. Uh, it it first appeared uh, on its own, and it's it's been published um, alongside Smith of Wooten Major. It was published in the Tolkien Reader, and it was published most recently in. Uh, Tales from from the Perilous Realm with illustrations by Alan Lee. Uh, I don't I don't have any funny anecdotes about uh, how or why Farmer Giles of Ham was written. I just know that it's a good story. It's a good story, and it seems like a really good um, aperitif for the end of The Hobbit, since it also concerns a a decidedly non dragon slayer type dude bargaining with a dragon. Yes. Uh, Chrysophylax dives, uh, and mm-hmm. and our our hero is a Aegidius de, de Hamo. I think a, it's Aegidius. 
Aegidius Ahenobarbus Julius Agricola de, de Hamo, for people were richly endowed with names in those days. There was more time than in folks were fewer, so that most men were dis distinguished. Uh, Jeremiah, would you would you like to uh, summarize Farmer Giles of of Ham? Well, in many ways, it's the uh, retelling of the the Giant Slayer uh, story, and uh, with uh, the classic Disney story where the he slays some flies, and everybody thinks he slayed some giants, and then they send him to do the terrible thing. It's similar in this. He goes out and shoots at a a, a passing giant with his blunderbuss. Uh, the giant runs away, sort of, and a dragon shows up uh, at, later on when he finds out there aren't any knights around, and Father Giles has to deal with them. Can I just interject at this point and observe that if Thorin Oakenshield wielded a blunderbuss, there would be everybody in Dungeons and Dragons would have a gun. Absolutely, completely. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think I think everyone in Dungeons and Dragons should have a have a gun, uh, or at least We're, some people. The right to bear arms, at least. Yes. Or maybe an, maybe an arquebus. Yeah. Oh, I I love the the arquebus. Dude, bring back the ribald. I love that thing in second edition. Are, are you saying the only solution against uh, bad adventurers are good adventurers with guns? I'm, I'm not I saying it's second appendix to to communicate that moral. I'm I'm <sighs> saying I would like to say I fire my blunderbuss before I roll a, a d20. That's that's all I'm I'm saying. I have actually said that phrase. So. <laughs> yeah, it's such a great word, blunderbuss. Mm -hmm. It's fun, mm -hmm. but okay. So yeah, it's, it's very uh, cartoony and pleasant um, mm -hmm. sort of description of the blunderbuss too. I, it put if it puts me in the mind of a of a Tom and Jerry cartoon because mm -hmm. he he um, he stuffs it with with nails and broken pieces of 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 crockery and things 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 like 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 that i mean i just i just yeah. love 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 the tone of this of this whole story it's 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 very sat satirical um you know it's you know a, a lot like um Ro rover random and and even even more so it 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 gets heavily into the political satire um and i i think he's 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 also satirizing um well he's 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 got his usual language jokes and his his you know, his jokes based on his his knowledge of of folklore and things um but i i really want want to focus on on the dragon uh we we have we have a dragon that that talks um he he sort of just just behaves like a like a miserable old 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 man uh, he's 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 almost like a like a cartoon character him him himself because he's you know the 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 minute you you point a sword at, at him he like he's he's got all these uh, ex excuses and he he tries to to talk his way way out of things it's 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 really funny. Well, I mean, not it's not just any sword though. He cuts through. He just he mows down a whole bunch of knights. Uh, over the course of the story, uh, pretty much effortlessly, mm -hmm. it's the fact that uh, Giles's sword is Tailbiter, Tailbiter, the super awesome magic sword that um, just needs somebody to hold it, and it will take care of all the rest. 
yeah. that's what it is that the dragon is really fearful of. With the punchline uh, being, Fire Order Giles probably can't wield it all that well anyway. Yeah, Tailbiter doesn't care about that, though. Tailbiter will will do all of the work itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... I think... I'm a... Sorry. No, you... Go, go ahead. I was going to say, one thing that Tolkien teaches us uh, in all of his writings is, if you want a cool weapon, name it. Oh, yeah, definitely. There are no... I have a generically magical plus one swords here. It's Sting and Orcrist mm-hmm. and Tailbiter. These are great names for weapons. Even even if the sword was named by someone else before you before you got it, having having a sword with it with it well a a a, a name Im, implies lineage, right? And a name implies that this sword has already done great things, and therefore it will continue to do great things. But in the, in the humorous spirit of this one, one of the things I really liked was the throwaway line about the Master Armor having basically ignored it because he thought the runes were out of date. <laughs> like, you know, a magic sword could, you know, go bad or expire or something. Yeah, it's past its sell-by date, surely. Which would be Shelf a really horn. fun thing to do to your PCs, quite honestly, is have, like, time-lapse runes so that over time it becomes a less potent weapon. I can see myself doing that to my PCs, but I am also a complete jerk. So. Oh, I can see how you could build off that there. Make sure you have to recycle your weapons in order to build the next weapon on top of that, except like little depots all over the place. Actually, I did play in a, uh, a long-running LARP that to keep people from stockpiling magic weapons, they did exactly that. Your, your magic weapon tags would expire. You'd have to get the the spells cast on it again at the end of the year. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's that's Farmer Giles of Ham. Does does anything? Does anybody want to want 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 to add any any comments? I mean, I, th- I think I think we'll we'll talk more about Chrysophylax, uh in in comparison to Smog when we when we talk about Smog. But does, does anyone have any more comments about just just the story in general? One thing that I really I enjoyed about Farmer Giles of Ham is that I sort of saw it in the vein of a um, a one-on-one RPG session where the player character is this guy who has no combat ability, but he has he he bumped his like bargain skill as high as he possibly could, and the game master was just struggling to come up with some way to work that into his ghost slay a dragon plotline and the end result is that farmer giles uh you know drives an extremely hard bargain and is a very sharp dealer and uh haggles the dragon into giving up the bulk of its uh of its horde and the bulk of its horde rather than the whole horde so that the dragon is invested in honoring the deal Mm -hmm. he's he's a lot like bilbo in the sense that he's He's obstinate and he's willing to simply uh, go go forward when when other people aren't. Uh, and I, and I, immensely practical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't even. It's 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 worth mentioning that he doesn't slay the dragon. He he convinces the dragon to uh, give him some treasure and live in in his town, and uh, sort of he he basically he basically becomes Daenerys. Um, you know, I've, 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 I've got a dragon, therefore I am king. 
Um, well, to be fair, the king was a kind of a jerk. Well, isn't that true of all kings? Uh, yes. I wouldn't. I wouldn't tell a king that to his to his face. Not without oh, Madame Guillotine on the left hand side. This is uh, this is America. You know, what's the king of England going to do? Come in here and try to quarter troops in our houses? <laughs> we will not stand for that. Okay. Uh. So let us let us move on to uh, the final chapters of the Hobbit. When we when we last left uh, our our heroes, they were they were cowering outside the secret entrance to the Lonely Mountain, um, and I I have to say that the, the part that immediately follows, uh, I think is is about my favorite moments in in the book. Um, not 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 even uh, Bilbo's conversations with Smaug. But his 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 dialogue with with the dwarves, um, as he's as he's preparing to go down da- down the hole, uh, and I think like here, at at this point, Bilbo has has fully transformed into into the Hobbit that we know him as in the Lord of 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 the Rings. He's he is no longer a uh, quivering you know little little puddle of jelly he's 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 uh he's practical he's uh obstinate he's you know he's he's gonna gonna do his 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 job whether whether or not uh you know the the dwarves really really appreciate it and he he gives them quite an earful yeah the first time that thorin talks about uh you know going in and confronting the dragon is way back in the first chapter in bilbo's house and Bilbo's response to that is to squeal and faint. Mm-hmm. And this time, Thorin gives a speech that is really pretty similar. And Bilbo's response is, yeah, yeah, I'm doing it already. I'm doing it. I can't do it while you're talking. I'm, I'm going. If you, if you mean you think it is my job to go in the secret passage first, O Thorin Thrain's son, Oakenshield, may your beard grow ever longer. Say so at once and have done. I might refuse. I have got you out of two messes already, which were hardly in the, in the original bargain, so that I am, I think, already owed some reward. But third time pays for all, as my father used to say, and somehow I don't think I shall refuse. Perhaps I have begun to trust my luck more than I used to in the old days. But anyway, I think I will go and have a peep at once and get it get it over. Now, who is coming with me? <laughs> yeah, it's a big change. It's mm-hmm. a big change from uh, you know the, the the guy painting and squealing in his pantry. Mm-hmm. And 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 a page later, let me see it. He says, "Now, now, now, you are in for it at last, Bilbo Baggins. You went and put your foot right in it that night of the party, and now you have got to pull it out or pay for it. Dear me, what a fool I I was and am! I have absolutely no use for dragon-guarded treasures, and the whole lot could stay here forever if only I could wake up and find this beastly tunnel with my own front hall at at home." Yeah, there's a bunch of references to Bag End and the party and a lot of stuff in the first chapter in this sequence, and I think that it's to to remind us of how far Bilbo has come at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, th- like this, this is 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 like these these two pages that I've I've basically read are like about about my my favorite moments of of the book, and I, I was utterly devastated that that we saw none of this in in the film. I mean, Bilbo basically did disappeared from the story at this at this point. Um, 
I mean, like it's it's worth noting that in in the book, the dwarves are basically cowards. Like they're they're not the the super awesome uh, warriors uh, that that they were in 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 the film. I mean, Tolkien Tolkien even even says, you know, there there it is. Dwarves are not heroes, but calculating folk with a great idea of the value of of money. Uh, decent enough. Decent enough if you don't expect too too much. Well, one of the things on that topic, you know, and in my read of it as an adult, I've always kind of thought of the dwarves as being like at retirement age. I mean, you know, even for dwarves, these guys are getting pretty old, aren't they? Well, except for for Feely and Keeley, yeah. Um, I mean, they, I mean, they they do fight in in the battle, um, but yeah, Thor, Thorin's supposed to be really old. Like he's yeah. he's 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 not the young man that uh, Richard Armitage portrayed him 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 as and he's he, he's actually the 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 oldest he's even older than than um Balin. Than, yeah Balin. yeah Balin was the only dwarf in the movies that was sort of presented as being as old as all of the dwarves are in the book mm-hmm. yeah and then that, you know, that that's always put a different tenor on the whole expedition to me that it, it's really this this you know almost this uh Odysseus's last last trip out. Like this is the last thing we're going to get to do. So let's let's go ahead and give this one last shot. Well, I mean, this is also the point at which it really becomes clear that the dwarves have no plan. Right. Yeah. This is you know way back again. Looking way back at the first chapter, uh, you know, Gandalf is talking to them and selling them on the idea of taking Bilbo along on their expedition. Uh, apparently Thorin asked Gandalf to find a dragon slayer, which makes sense, right? There's a dragon. It's going to need to get slain. Um, and Gandalf says that he looked around in, in the Shire, apparently, and couldn't find one. And so take a burglar instead. And you know, on the face of it, that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But nobody calls Gandalf on it, I guess, because you know he's played by Ian McKellen and it looks cool. Um, but now that we're, we're actually here, what is Bilbo supposed to do? Right, sneak in. He sneaks in. He steals a cup. He comes back out. Is he just supposed to repeat that uh, several thousand times? And what, they, and what do they do when they get all of the cups out and it's uh, there's a big pile of cups sitting on the side of the mountain? <laughs> I mean, what's the what's the dwarves' end game here? What's their exit strategy? They 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 clearly don't don't have one. I mean the the I mean and, and like after after Smog's departure. I mean the the dwarves, you know, tra- transform from from non-heroes to 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 almost almost villains. I mean they're they're quite willing to sit on their pile of gold with with no food and starve to death. I I think that um, it it also is kind of interesting that arrogance is what causes downfalls throughout the whole story. I mean. The downfall of uh, uh, Lake Town is caused by essentially Bilbo's arrogance. He picked a fight with the dragon, and the dragon responded by going and burning the town that he thought the guy came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was having another one of his manic episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just going crazy, uh, making nonsense up, and screaming it at a dragon. Never laugh hey. at live dragons. 
That's true. Yeah, he gets all excited and carried away, and it's the spiders all over again. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, this time it's the the people of Lake Town that pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually my question here because you expressed before that there was a good chunk that was revised after Lord of the Rings was created. Did he become more of, for lack of a better term, sarcastic after Lord of the Rings was written? Because I noticed that these events happen primarily when he's wearing the ring. Uh, the, the only chapter that was revised was uh, the, the riddle chapter with Gollum. And it was revised uh, during the period while the Lord of the Rings was still in production. So nothing, nothing was, was changed in, in, in published form after the, the Lord of, of, of the Rings. Yeah, I think that, I could be mistaken about this, but I think that there were a number of little line edits throughout the book that Tolkien made. Uh, but the only like really substantive change was the, the, se- the sequence with Gollum. Uh, that's entirely they- possible. There were. I, I used my, my annotated copy of The Hobbit when I was going through it. They crop up in, in random places. Yes, someone else picked up additional resources. Uh, I had my parents in my house. Funny story, my parents got it for me for Christmas and my birthday one year. Nice. So, so, you, so you have two copies of the annotated Hobbit. I did until my friend's daughter was born. Oh, <laughs> my. She I, might, she might have actually, to wait a couple years to, to be able to read that. Nah, my, my, my earliest memories are my father reading The Hobbit to me. This this one, as with all of us, I think this one's very dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think I think that that's part of the glory of the first parts of this is you can begin very early with it. Mm-hmm. So let's let's let's. And I really felt myself almost transported reading these last couple chapters too. Like I'm sitting on my bed reading, you know, the the smog getting taken out by Bard and everything, and I'm picturing myself in fifth grade doing the exact same thing. Like it felt so similar to that same moment mind you bigger bed but different town but like it, it was just amazing how much that you have that memory tied to a story like this and uh, honestly the the bit with bard firing at smaug that line he says stuck out of my head even you know i hadn't read the hobbit in decades but i could almost quote it before i started rereading it the uh uh, arrow, black arrow, I have saved you to the last. You never failed me, and I have recovered you. I had if ever you came from the uh, the true king under the mountain. Yeah. Go now and speed well. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> so let's... I think the, the I think the tone of the book uh, kind of shifts in this section. Um, once once Bilbo is going in and meeting Smaug all the way to the end of the book, it gets a lot uh, a lot more epic, a lot more there's a lot less comic relief, a lot less of a sense of um, you know, brolicking mm-hmm. and more of a sense of you know, people are making terrible choices and we're all going to die life is, is awful well, it's 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 as it's as uh, C.S. Lewis says. It, it's 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 as if the Battle of Toad Hall had become a Heimsoken, and 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 Badger had begun to to, to talk like 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 Nyal. Um, yeah, I think I think we 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 brought this up up last time as 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 one of one of the really brilliant parts of of the book is is the shift from from fairy tale to you know not uh, fa- 
fairy tale, and 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 the dwarves really really showing their their shades of gray, and it's you know there's 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 real moral issues here, um, but I I I didn't want to want to interrupt your your reminiscences because because it was it was really uh, heart heart warming warming to listen to, but but I want to talk about the dragon in the room. Smog has always reminded me of a big evil kitty cat. And the reason why is he's relatively agile for his size. He's definitely predatory. He's always mm-hmm. slinking towards him, trying to find it. He's using senses other than his eyes. He's very sarcastic. He's still playing the mind games with his so-called prey. Mm-hmm. And he's treating him a lot like mice in the wall. And I'm sure that was intentional to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I I didn't have as much time to to dive in into into the rat lift for this for this section. Uh, as as I did for for some of of the the other sections, uh, but but Ratliff says that Tolkien basically did for 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 dragons uh, what he what he did for for elves. I mean, but before Tolkien, you know, dragons like 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 elves were considered uh, silly things. They were they were considered uh, passe, and Tolkien made made dragons fearsome monsters again. Uh, but but I I also think that that Tolkien's dragons um, are have have properties you you unique to to his uh, writing style. Um, you know the the Dungeons and Dragons dragons uh, are are portrayed as these as these majestic uh, these these majestic ancient uh, feline but but also lizard uh, creatures. Um, whereas, whereas Tolkien's dragons are uh, d- described as, as as being foul, loathsome, very very destructive, and I th- I think they have more in common with 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 the biblical serpent. Um, I mean, I want to. Tolkien. Wanna... I, I think I think you're you're on on track there. Tolkien's mm-hmm. dragons have so much of gluttony about them. Mm-hmm. Haverus, actually. Yeah, and it makes sense, because if you go back, you know, this is, again, him standing on his knowledge of traditional heroic epics, because if you look at, um, like, the Nibelungenlied, you get, you know, Siegfried, who, when he fights Fafnir, Fafnir started out as a dwarf who was just overcome with avarice, and that need to accumulate wealth is what turned him into a dragon. So you have going back, you know, well into the Middle Ages or even before, because even that was lifted from the Volsung saga, um, you know, you have this this correlation between that sort of unnatural desire or desiring wealth to that extent being corrupting and being a thing that, you know, is inherent to dragondom, I guess, which is really was very interesting to see in Smog and something I definitely didn't pick up on when I was a kid. They also well, the- have a... Oh, I'm sorry. Go for it. Uh, I was just going to say that they are... Uh, if you read the Cimmerillion and the other sort of background books, mm-hmm. you find out more about where they're from. And uh, the, they are basically created purely as a weapon race by Morgoth, who hates everybody else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good weapon. Yeah. Yeah, and Children of Hurin, um, Christopher Tolkien's uh, edited version of uh, the Turin Turinbar saga. 
um, I remember listening to the uh, the unabridged audiobook read by Christopher Lee, which I I recommend wholeheartedly. By the way, wow. Um, mm-hmm. And I was listening to it, and I thought, well, you know, this is cool, but it doesn't really feel like it's set in a Middle Earth that I recognize. Um, and that's understandable because it's antediluvian, literally. And um, you know, the only character that is contemporaneous in both stories that's still around are um, Cured in the Shipwright and Galadriel. And neither of them show up in the Turim story. But you know, then about you know, I, I want to say about two thirds of the way through, Turin meets Glaurung, the uh, the Great Worm, the mm-hmm. first dragon. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah, this is definitely, this is definitely Smog's, you know, bitter great uncle or, uh, or grandfather or something. There's the, the, the line between the two of them was just so, so obvious. What, what, what makes you see that? So just, you know, not only are these dragons strong and proud, mm-hmm. they're, they're jerks. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I, I mean, wanna... they're, they're they're not magnificent. Mm-hmm. No, you know, they're. I uh, this is uh, perhaps hopefully maybe will be a dated reference by the time this airs, but they they remind me kind of of Donald Trump. They're not only <laughs> you know being uh, rich and powerful, they have to make sure everybody knows that they're rich and powerful, and they do not have small hands. Dragons are terrific. Yeah, well, it's. And the, corru- and the corruption is on their treasure as well. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I think. I think the best uh, de- depiction of Tolkien's dragons probably is is in uh, the Lord of the Rings on on online from from uh, Turbine, where where they're. I mean, they they almost look like these these prehistoric his, uh, chicken lizards. Like they're they're ugly to look at. They're they're an ugly color. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just these, these weird mis, misshapen creatures. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if, 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 if anyone has the copy of, of the Hobbit with the cover that's, that's drawn in Tolkien's hand, but I'm, I'm looking at it, it, it right now. And he, he draws, uh, Smaug on, on, on the back cover. And I mean, he's, 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 he's long, like a, like a snake, with with you know four four legs and and wings, so I mean I'm 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 really reminded of you know in the in the in the Garden of Eden, you know but but before the serpent was was cursed by by God to crawl on his on his belly, he he had four 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 legs, and this is this is what he he might have might have looked like. He's he's literally a a a a worm, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But paradoxically. This dragon kills all the dwarves, steals all the treasure, and has a nap. He doesn't really respond to the outside environment beyond the occasional raid now and then until these damn dwarves show up at his house. Well, he's he's an an immortal being of pure evil. He doesn't he doesn't have jerk. any right. He has he doesn't even have any any purpose for the treasure. He just he just wants it. You know, he much, wants to act out of spite. Spite is what causes him to act. Mm-hmm. Much, spite, yes, that's a wonderful, a wonderful yeah. word to apply to Smaug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he was actually receptive to the flattery, even though he saw through it. And then, oh, really? That city? Bye. 
and and like he he even corrupts the land around him. I mean, we're 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 told that the that the area is called the Desolation of of Smog. That's even the title of of the of the of the second movie in in Jackson's trilogy. Um, you know, and you know, far far more than than just like eating eating some some sheep. You know, uh, we're we're told that that smog is basically basically laid waste to the entire countryside, so, so that nothing grows, and and yeah. the travelers don't find, you know, any living creatures except for the for the few birds that they that they that they talk to. I mean, um, uh, I there's there's passages from uh, the 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 story of Turin, where where. Uh, Tolkien basically uh, describes uh, Glaurin on the move, like he's he, he's going from one place to to another, and like these elves are watching him from 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 far off, and it, it's basically basically like like watching God Godzilla, because he's just he's just laying waste to to the countryside, leaving leaving scorched earth in his in his wake, you know, burning burning the the earth black under underneath him, like it's yeah, it's a flying flamethrower tank, man. It's going in yeah. the air. It's flying all over the place, and you can't hit the damn thing. Well, Glaurin ex- explicitly cannot fly, but uh, Smaug can mm-hmm. definitely. And uh, when when you describe him as a tank, I mean, he describes himself as uh, was it armor like tenfold shields, and my teeth are swords. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's that's one of my favorite lines. Yeah, yeah, but it, His like wings the, a hurricane. The 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 destruction that that Tolkien. De- described seems seems to be even even beyond that 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 would be caused by by mere uh, fire breath and a and a vor- voracious appetite, like it 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 seems almost biblical in its um, terribleness. Absolutely, the, the reading of Tolkien I've done most recently was going back to revisit John Garth's Tolkien and the Great War, and it always calls back to me the the photographs of of uh, no man's land after artillery barrages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking the same thing rereading this, because uh, I've been reading a lot about World War One in the past year, and yeah, uh, a lot of Tolkien's imagery for terrible things is the destruction of the environment. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the land itself becomes blighted uh, any place that there's a bad guy who's in power. Mm-hmm. It's 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 interesting because um, we 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 talked about smog flying, but but the first thing that that the lake men do when they see frog when they see smog uh, uh, approaching is is they they cut cut the bridge, and I thought I thought that was strange because like that that seems to in infuriate smog who who tries to cross cross the bridge and he can't and he can't swim through through. Through, through the lake, but he can fly, so he just flies over over the town. Like, like I'm not well, sure why that's even, even. The bridge was the only thing in the area, in the in the vicinity of Lake Town, that was strong enough, sturdy enough to support his weight. Mm-hmm. So without it, he doesn't have anything that he can land on, and he's ah. stuck just strafing. Because yeah, if he la- if he tries to land on a building, the building will collapse. He'll fall in the lake. Okay, that and makes more sense. As a creature of element, as a creature of elemental fire, he really doesn't want to get into that lake. Yeah, like uh, they, they, which is something that's really emphasized, I think. Yeah, because yeah, it, it's really neat. It, it Tolkien well, yeah, makes it makes it makes it sound right. like like merely merely sub- submersing himself in the lake will 
will kill him, or at least at least remove his his uh, ability to make make fire. Yeah, I'm, I'm and, not sure that it won't. And and on on the topic of the desolation, it's interesting that he's living right next to the lake because it's almost like the lake has an antipathy for him that it will quench his fire. It's going to actively do that, not well, that's, passively. That's that's why the lake men are living on the lake. Because yeah. well, the, they... the title of the chapter right. is "Fire and Water," mm-hmm. right? This is this is a, a fight between fire and water. I mean, we're mm-hmm. we're told that that these men used to live in Dale, which was right by the mountain, and when Smaug came, they they moved as far away as they as they could and put themselves in the middle of 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 water. So, <laughs> well, again, if the bridge would have been there, the Smaug would have ultimately just moseyed on in. And started just taking a leisurely lunch for all intents and purposes. Whereas without the bridge, he's basically flying around like a maniac in order to stay above the water while basically getting his revenge. So I, I, I guess if 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 we were trying to make uh, Tolkien accurate dragons in D and D, they they would be closer to elementals than than I guess their their own subs, you know type of type of creature. I think oh, so. Yeah. Completely. Also, the. Uh... There are no good dragons in the Tolkienian Middle Earth, unlike a lot of D and D realms. That they, they have no opposite number of good, good guy flying lizards. Mm-hmm. They just don't exist. There's the the eagles are probably the closest. Yeah, uh, the closest yeah. analogy, and that's probably. it's not a particularly it's not a particularly close analogy. Oh, dude, yeah. Oh, we. I, I think I think Manway has like one or two personal eagles that are like I, I, immortal and and huge, but yeah, the rest rest of the eagles aren't aren't even even close. Well, if we want to just drag in Mayar, I'm sure there's some angel over in the Undying Lands that fits mm-hmm. the description of like a dragon, but good. But uh, it's kind of beyond the scope now, of, I, of what we're talking about. Are Jeff? Do you, do you remember from the Silmarillion? Are are the dragons Maiar like like the Balrogs are, or, or are they are they entirely mortal? I think that they are entirely mortal. Uh, the main thing that I remember about dragons in the Silmarillion, it, because I am not a Tolkien scholar and I don't remember all of the important stuff, I just remember like one thing: is that they can't fly until, um, and nothing on more in Morgoth's host can fly until he comes up with winged dragons, which is like dragons 2.0. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the 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 second generation dragons can fly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the movement from Glaurung to Ancalagon was pretty pretty significant. There you go. And can I add anything, Rob? Huh? Yeah. My, my my remembrance of it as well is that that he creates the dragons in his forges. That they, they they are much more his creation rather than something he corrupted. Yeah, he uh, he corrupted uh, creatures to make orcs. Whereas, yeah, that they are a, a a new race to his and the, uh, his and hand. the Balrogs are are fallen fallen uh, Maiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. supposedly it, I have, I feel like it's a, it's an area that's really inconsistent because the orcs are nominally like elves that he captured and did terrible things to. And it's not clear whether the trolls are ints that he captured and did terrible things to, or if he created the ints, uh, created the trolls wholesale in mockery of the ints. And he seems to have created dragons wholesale. But in a number of places, it's asserted that he was unable to create anything new. He could only corrupt others', others creations. 
and that it was beyond him because he was he was not Eru, he was only a Valar. But Aule created the dwarves out of whole cloth, and Aule and Melkor were, you know, if anything, Melkor was was more powerful, higher level, mm-hmm. uh, higher rank than Aule. Well, so I, mean, I feel like it's, I feel like there's a lot of inconsistency there, and I'm sure there's a way to thread that needle. Um, I'm just not sure on what it is. Well, I will to to this. I will only say that that the Silmarillion is is supposed to be the history of of Middle Earth from the point of view of of the elves, and the the elves clearly were were not privy to uh, Melkor's secret. So so all we we really know are their are their best guesses. A fair point. Sure, I I think that it is pretty clear that the Balrogs were. Um, Maiar pretty much on the same level as uh, the uh, the wizards like uh, uh, Gandalf and Saruman. Um, so I, I I think they were this separate thing and not a mortal race like well like the, the I got, but I think the question there is did when when Melkor left the Undying Lands and stormed off in a huff and went off to um, uh, Arnor, did did uh, are the the the, the things you mean, that, that you mean, we later uh, Ang, refer to Ang Ang Angband, sure or, or Atumno. Uh, the, did the things that we later came to understand as Balrogs are they Maiar that left with him or are they Maiar that he somehow created uh, once he was away from the other Valar? I, I, we're, from the. We're, from the cacophony of Melkor or Morgoth, where he where he interrupts the song, I always took away that they were the ones closest to him, singing with him. We're we're told that I I, th- I think the the Balrogs were fire spirits. They were they were fire themed uh, Maiar originally in service to um, Aule, uh, and I. I, I don't. I don't know if if they rebelled with him at the time of 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 the song, or if if they rebelled with him with him later. Uh, I, they were Maiar that followed him into exile, if, if I remember correctly. So I guess I guess I'm not really really adding anything. Yeah. All all we can agree on is is that, is that the Balrogs were Maiar, and we don't really know whether the dragons were were mortal or whether they were they were also Maiar. Uh, but they were definitely pretty, pretty uh, terrible, especially when they could they could fly. And we're getting way down the rabbit hole because theoretically, what we're talking about right now is Smaug. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Waiting for that. And who, who it, is a, it, a moderately bad version of Dragon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it it is pronounced Smaug, not Smog, and and has nothing to do with uh, pollution. Fair enough. Okay. So, basically, when Smog leaves, uh, the dwarves have the hole to themselves. Well, do we do we want to say say anything more about Smog or or, or the slaying of Smog or or dragons in general before we we go back to to the dwarves? I guess my final thought, maybe on Smog, is that this is one of the better played dragons if you look at it from a D and D perspective, because while they are an inherently intelligent creature and like genius level intelligent 
almost every time I've encountered a dragon in Dungeons and Dragons, it's just been a slot vest, right? Like there isn't a lot of communication between the party and the dragon. There isn't a lot of the dragon trying to get into people's minds or play those sort of mind games. It really is just sort of the DM using this thing as a big artillery machine, you know, just start trying to wipe out the party. And I think that especially reading um, the interaction that Bilbo has with him really paints a picture of the the kind of thing you could do with such an intelligent creature and such a long-lived creature mm-hmm. and really get into, like, they might try to parlay. I mean, if it's really that intelligent and it knows that it's that much more powerful than these tiny little beings that are coming up to it, it really would almost be like, when you guys are talking about it being sort of cat-like, would almost be like a, a domesticated cat playing with a mouse that it found. You know, it's, it eats whenever it wants, so it doesn't necessarily need to kill it, but that doesn't mean it's not going to have fun sort of toying with it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think outside the dragon wizard kings of Dark Sun, in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons, the only dragon that I can think of that really kind of fits into this mold, as opposed to just being a big, uh, you know, flying artillery piece, is the I forget his name. He's the green dragon in Dragonlance mm-hmm. that has taken over the city mm-hmm. of uh, Sylvanost. Yes, I can't remember it either, but yeah, I. I'm right there with you. Starts with a C, and I wish I could remember it. I'm sure somebody out there does. Um, but that's it's. But it's really rare to have the dragon, you know, proactively being an asshole in the way that Smaug does, mm-hmm. in the way that Glaurung does, for that matter. Yeah, I, I think that there are a few NPCs in Eberron that are supposed to be. Uh, movers and shakers that are dragons, uh, but uh, and they're assholes. Um, we should m- put like a uh, an explicit warning on the episode, by the way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, or, or just just you know edit out what I what I said there. That's fine. Too. I, I think one of the things that out of this the 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 dropping of uh, Smaug from the sky by Bard also brings up a huge thing that Tolkien keeps returning to is this notion that we were better once. That that men were somehow greater in their past. Um, well, it's it's and, it's the it's the it's the perfect world that, that has been been marred by by sin. You know, the the, the you know God's perfect perfect vision, you know, has has been has been for, for, for forever corrupted by the by the coming of evil i i i found myself wondering how much of that is influenced by his experiences in world war one though because i mean one could argue world war one is perhaps the worst war in human history there is an argument to be made for that you you just made that 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 argument my my takeaway in particular from his war experiences and his writing is in he's you know, almost in a post-traumatic stress, the yearning for quiet, mm-hmm. the yearning for calm and a routine and home. And then also the idea that when you return home, which we're headed towards shortly here in the, in the podcast is the, is different when you return home has changed. And that's a theme you hear from veterans uh, across time. And, and I think, I think it is present here. I don't think it's, an intentional metaphor, but I think it he, he absolutely those those experiences informed the way he approached this material. It's it's interesting because that that's also a big part of the her- heroic cycle as defined by 
Joseph Joseph Campbell, the the hero, leaves home, goes out into to the world, and 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 comes home to find that uh, he he has changed, and and home has 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 changed. So I mean, that's well. Also, there's the the myth of the gentleman soldier that you know somehow before the 20th century there was this notion that there was at least some sort of gentlemanly behavior honor and war it's kind of a lie even then but that myth persists that myth completely was annihilated by new technology mm -hmm. and new things in world war one and i think that has something to do with that sort of yearning for a simpler older time when we were better than this mm -hmm. and and also the the approach that whenever mechanization comes up in these stories, it is always something that is destructive, and something that is destructive on on a really remarkable scale, and something that the foes, the orcs and the goblins approach. I agree completely. In fact, I would argue that when you were talking about it in your previous, you know, Hobbit episode, that you talked about how this was such a touch point for the '60s. Because they grew up, I'd also argue that the same themes that they were using for the counterculture is why it struck such a hard chord with the people in question. It was the idea of going back to nature and going back to a simpler time, mm -hmm. which they agreed with. It was the book they wrote and grew up with, ultimately. Well, and the, there is a really important aspect of the breakdown of World War One being the loss of hope and the kind of loss of the promises of philosophical modernism, right? So Europe and the West had been operating under this idea that mankind is becoming more civilized and more rational and therefore more perfect and more peaceful for what, like at that point, two, three hundred years. And then we have the bloodiest war in human history. And so you have this wholesale breakdown of many of the assumptions that people in academia and people just across the board had based their worldview on that but surely we are becoming a better species or we're becoming a, you know, more rational group of people. And so then you have, like, you know, people retreating into, like, more nihilistic thoughts and or you have, like, you know, the birth of postmodernism, which gets a huge boom in the 60s, too, which kind of coincides with the counterculture movement. And that it has some place in Tolkien stuff, too. And that kind of yearning for we were better once, right? That time when we still hoped, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, Robert Graves is uh, goodbye to all that about World War One, for instance. Yeah. Bilbo certainly spends probably the bulk of The Hobbit, uh, you know, fantasizing about home. It's just that at some point along the way, he pivots and he stops fantasizing about abandoning the quest and, and going back home, and he starts fa fantasizing about finishing the stupid quest and going <laughs> home afterwards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. right, which, so which is an important, an important shift and one that... I think probably happens somewhere in the in the Merkwood portion of the story. Yeah. All right. So so back to back to Bilbo and and the stupid quest. Um, so we 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 come back to 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 the dwarves who've. I mean, it's it's almost like they've been in in and sorcelled because because Thorin's basically saying, "Well, I'm just going to sit here on this on this pile of gold food. I don't need need food." Uh, I'm just gonna gonna look for for the Arkenstone, and you know Bard comes along and says, "Hey, um, our homes were uh, d destroyed. Could you could you maybe help us?" And Thorin says, "No, us us thirteen dwarves. We're gonna sit here in this mountain and we're gonna gonna defend our our treasure uh, un, un, until our until our dying breath." 
um, I, I, I actually noticed on, on this, this read through, they, they actually like build a, build a wall, like around, around the, the river. And they, they build they, a wall at the gates, right? The, the, yeah. the gate that connects the kingdom under the mountain to the, to the rest of the world and which, which over and over again has been, uh, you know, it's, it's the source of the river. It's mm-hmm. the, it's where the gold flowed out and, uh, spread wealth to the land it's how the dwarves and the humans and the elves interacted with one another this gate and when what does thorin do thorin builds a wall there but it it it, it also briefly says that that they that they widen the river out outside the wall so that that it it becomes a pool uh, much like the pool outside side of moria yeah to make, yeah, make it defensible yeah yeah, so I, like I'm, I'm just, I'm just wondering, like, if the pool out, outside of Moria was like a standard dwarven defense tactic. That pool is so much worse. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's 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 had a watcher living in it for a thousand years. <laughs> that was that was. Anybody after... happen to know the secret legendarium origin of the watcher in the water? Uh, is that we... a creation, Orgoth? Uh, anybody happen to know? We. It's we just no terrifying. <laughs> I think Tolkien read some Lovecraft. Sure, let's throw the Kraken in there. Why not? I okay. think, I think, I think Tolkien was a was a was a fan fan of Lovecraft, just as many of his con- contemporaries were. I mean, he was he was a fan of Dunsany, so why not why not Lovecraft too? But we can we can talk about that when we get to the Lord of the Rings in you know twenty years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So then we we have we have from, from this we have the battle of of five five, five armies and it's Which, it's, it's probably yeah. it's probably the the first big uh, battle scene that that Tolkien wrote about that got that got published. Let's I let's spend argue. a second uh, before we start talking about the battle of five, five armies. Let's spend just a second talking about the Arkenstone. Okay, it's so cool. It is. It's like the best thing. I, 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 in reading the the annotated Hobbit, they they pointed out in that that he specifically uses some very similar language, like identical language in describing the Arkenstone that he uses in describing the Silmarils. Yeah, my understanding is that when he was writing the Hobbit, he was he had the Silmaril. He had the Cimmerils in his mind for the Arkenstone, but he didn't uh, think at the time that the the Cimmerillion story and the Hobbit story were going to be set in the same universe. Um, so he didn't make that connection between the Silmaril and the Arkenstone. He just sort of created another Silmaril and stuck it in and called it the Arkenstone. Well, that... because in, in every in every sense, the Arkenstone right. is basically a Silmaril. Right. Well, it 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 could be the be the Noglamir. Right, because because the because because the dwarves were uh, contracted by by Thingol to to take the Silmaril that that he owned, and put it on a on a necklace. Um, yeah, but Mahadras uh, took that and threw it into the sea. Yeah, but that's well, I mean, so uh, Ratliff in in the history of of the Hobbit is is pretty adamant that that while Tolkien was. Writing the first drafts of 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 the Hobbit, it it was definitely set in Beleriand during during the war, and Mirkwood was Doriath, and the Withered Heath was an 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 Fowglith, uh, and you know other other things. 
mm-hmm. uh, and and the Lonely Mountain was probably Belagost or or the other one. Um, so yeah, so you're 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 not wrong, Jeff. I mean, Tolkien Tolkien was 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 definitely thinking of of the first age while he was he was writing this, and and I'm not sure at at what point he changed his 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 mind, but it's it's definitely plausible that that the that the um, Arkenstone either either was a was a Silmaril or, or or something something like like a Silmaril. Yeah, well, the um, the three Silmarils, one of them was fixed in the sky by the Valar and became a star. One of them was thrown into the ocean, mm-hmm. and the third one was cast into a crack of doom. Right. And I suppose it is just barely within the bounds of possibility that the crack of doom Silmaril could have drifted underneath the earth and right. ended up at the at the heart of the Lonely Mountain. Well, what I'm yeah. what I'm saying is, Jeff, is that is that is, is that while while he was writing it, like before he finished it was taking place before all that happened and and only after he finished it did he decide that it was it was like an entirely different di- different age oh i see what you're saying sure yeah sure they um uh, in the actual uh fiction because i looked it up while we were talking about it um there is uh no as far as i've got a encyclopedia of all things tolkien uh, I forget. I've actually got three or four of them, honestly. Uh, but uh, one of the the entries on Arkenstone says it was discovered soon after the establishment of the Dwarven Kingdom in the Lonely Mountain, and uh, the dwarves used their skill to work the gem into a shimmering, multi-faceted jewel. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it was at least worked by them, and did not just show up being awesome. Okay. Um, so that that would indicate to me that it's not a Cimmeril, but eh. the and the other important bit of foreshadowing for future Tolkien writings, I think we get out of out of the the Arkenstone is that the Hobbit is the one that is willing to hand it off to try and see the world get better. Mm-hmm. A good point. Yeah. Good. 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 Hobbit sense pre- 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 prevails, right? You you lost your houses. You want some money to buy new houses and and food. Here, take this rare, valuable gem. You can probably sell it and get enough money to be set for life. Yeah, yeah and of course, you know some of the wealth of Dale was intermingled with the the wealth of the dwarves um, in Smaug's uh, Smaug's hoard. So it's not as though Bard is merely saying. You know we're in desperate need. Please give us stuff because we gave you stuff before, and now we're all in danger of dying. Mm-hmm. Um, he also has some kind of legalistic claim to the claim to at least part of the horde, mm-hmm. uh, which you know Thorin just disregards completely. Right. I think I think Tolkien makes it clear that that Thorin's being patently ridiculous at this point. Oh yeah, he's being a jerk. There's a bit where um, you know he, they're trying to bargain. Uh, to get the Arkenstone back, and Thorin uh, suddenly starts saying that you know the deal with Bilbo was you know one fourteenth of the silver and one fourteenth of the gold, but none of the gems. Uh, which is it's just him just just making stuff up at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, again, it's just ultimately until his big gem, which Bilbo picked up before he knew what the heck it was to begin with. 
And then basically when Thorin starts ripping apart the place, saying, where is it? He's going, uh-oh. Yeah, I mean, and they, they, needed to find... Sorry, I th- go on. Yeah, I think I think I think uh, Jackson tried tried to make the the Arkenstone the 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 ring of this of this trilogy, and I think I think I think that was that was one of his s- smarter moves. It's it's definitely the the uh, M- M- MacGuffin that that drives a lot of the of the latter drama. Where were where were you you saying, Chris? Oh. I was just saying how I think it's hilarious how he picks it up before he realizes what it is. Yeah. And then he finds out how important it is and he considers it more important than anything else. And then the army shows up. Well, he this... has no idea what he can do about it. So he basically tries to tr- give them a bargaining chip ultimately. The same to try thing to con the defenses. basically happens with, with the ring. He picks up the ring not even knowing what it is. He just, he just puts his, his hand on it in the dark. And puts it in his in his in his pocket, and and Tolkien yeah. wrote wrote that passage long before he even had the the idea that that the ring would be something something more than, you know, just a just a ring of invisibility. In yeah. And now I think one of the most prominent things about the Battle of Fire Memories is I would argue that this sequence is almost the bedrock that Dungeons and Dragons is based on. When you think about it. One, it's the difference of opinions between three major races. Dwarves on one side, elves and humans on the other. However, when all is said and done, they outclass their opponent, but they don't outnumber them when the real enemy shows up. Which sets up the legendary orc hunts that will ultimately become one of the mainstays of Dungeons and Dragons. The few heroes... uh fighting wave after wave of orcs and goblins, you mean? Exactly. The humans and demi-humans against the humanoids. Right. Mm-hmm. So in the in the battle of, of of five 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 armies, we've we've got the the men of Lake Town, the the dwarves of the Iron Mountains, and the the elves of Mirkwood on one side versus the goblins and wargs of of the Misty Mountains and 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 the Gray Mountains on the other side. Apparently, apparently the Wargs are the Fifth Army. I, I always thought thought the Eagles were the Fifth Army, but I guess there weren't enough. There Eagles. was there was a really snooty footnote in my copy of the Annotated Hobbit, pointing yeah. out that the Wolves are the for, for the Fifth Army, and that that cartoon got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the Rankin Bass Hobbit. Yeah. Yes, which which I do dearly love. Well, Tolkien fans are nothing if not snooty. So, um, I mean, would we be doing this podcast if we weren't all really pedantic? Uh, honestly, we are also all very snarky. So, beyond just being pedantic, we just like to make fun of things. I so, can imagine whoever wrote that probably did too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like, Sorry, and like go on. most of most of Tolkien's uh, battles, the the, the actual amount of page space that it takes up is is very short. You you, you you get like a lot of very awesome things happening in about a page and and a half, uh, especially the part where um, uh, Bayorn just shows up out of out of nowhere and and uh, and uh, carries carries uh, Thorin off of off of the field like a very uh, here here suit Valkyrie. Once again, it's not clear why Bjorn is there. 
Other than I mean, other yeah, I mean, other than there are goblins to kill, and he hates goblins. Um, yeah, I know though. I think it's, it's almost like even... on wheels there. Well, I think I think Tolkien's <laughs> Tolkien's trying to show that that the entire world that that these that 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 the Hobbit and the dwarves have traveled to are are one. Uh, you know, it's is is all inter interconnected, right? So like so like everyone's there at this at this battle. Everyone east of the Misty Mountains, which which represents yeah. the break between civilization and and this this wilderness, is is involved in this in this s- s- struggle. I mean, if 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 you look at 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 the actual map of Middle Earth, the goblins have come from all the way on on the other side side of Mirkwood. They've they've come from even farther away than than uh, Bjorn, and the and the eagles have come from just as far 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 away. So um, none of it makes makes any sense, but it, but but it's 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 cool. True enough, but I would argue that Bjorn is the main reason why werebears are good. Indeed, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Bjorn is, is 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 the originator of 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 the werebear trope. Um, I'll I'll tell you what what else doesn't make any any sense. They're 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 fighting over all this money, and yet on on the map there's no other civilizations near nearby where they could spend this 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 money. Like the nearest country is Rohan, and you have to travel miles and miles down the down the running river. I think I think I think Tolkien Im, implies that that there there must be some other towns and and, and countries clo- closer to hand. Like he he mentions this uh, mis- mysterious land of Dor- Dorwinian where where the elves get their wine, but it it never shows up on any any official map. Mm-hmm. I mean it's it's showed up on lots of fan fan made made maps, but uh, on on the on the official map most most of the area around Dale and the and the Lonely Mountain and and Lake Town is pretty sparse. But maybe it's not important, though, for the sake of trading with other nations as much as it it is establishing your own sovereignty, right? Because then you have your own. So, like, if Dale is going to reestablish itself, then it needs some sort of royal coffers so that it can pay for its own things and have some sort of medium of exchange, right? So maybe this accumulation of wealth is going to be able to be a, a... a foothold for them to start having a medium of exchange to start having their own society mm-hmm. based off that instead of perpetually being in sort of a barter trade sort of situation. I think, Maybe. I think, I think Tolkien meant for there to be civilizations clo- closer to hand. He just, he just never put them on a map, which, which is, is perfect for GMs who want to run adventures in this area. They can just make up whatever they want. If you if you Agreed. if you buy if you if you get the uh, Iron Crown Enterprises uh, Middle Earth uh, role 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 playing game they've they've filled in that whole area around the the Sea of Rune with various you know Eastern European in inspired uh, peoples that are are perfect for this for this for this purpose. Mm-hmm. Okay, actually, getting back to the Battle of the Five Armies, I actually am rather impressed how many different types of birds are involved. Besides the eagles attacking, before then, ravens are presented as, for lack of a better term, the emissaries of the dwarves. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that help send out and round the troops here, which shows that, I guess in a weird, crazy way, because both sides of the five armies, the good guys, have birds. It's almost a sign that these guys are not the bad guys. Kind of like the idea that they're all associated with the symbol of them, as opposed to the dragons, which are definitely a symbol of evil. I think I think uh, I think uh, after after Tom Bombadil and Bjorn, uh, Roak is probably the the most over overlooked 
character in uh, adaptations of uh, Tolkien. Such wonderful names for ravens, also. Ra, son of Kra. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just does, does anyone... the thing that he named his birds basically because they were shooting out of his window like one day and they were annoying the heck out of him. He just added a continent. So does does anyone want want to bring up anything else about about the Battle of Five Five Armies, or or about I... uh, the Arkenstone? Well, the big but, thing so... again is ultimately Bilbo, who's been instrumental up to this point. Proves one of the great universal truths of Dungeons and Dragons: you don't put your thief on the front lines. True. Like this is is the point in 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 the story where where things have finally got way too too epic for for even a a practical and re- resourceful hobbit, right? I mean we've 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 talked about how this has gone from a quiet fairy tale, you know, all 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 the way up to like you know Twilight of the of the gods here. And you know, for for most of, of of the way, you know, Bilbo's been been able to to find some place where he fits in, where he 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 could be useful. But when full on war breaks out, Bilbo basically just put puts on on his ring and and disappears. And, and you know, I think I think he well, I I actually think he he tries to fight in the in the battle, but he gets he gets hit on the head with a with a with with a rock, right? And like you know, up up to to this point, like he's just he's just been been going more and more. Like I don't want to be here. This is not where I want to be. I want some food. I want some breakfast. I want my warm bed. This is not a place for a hobbit. Yeah. Even even Gandalf doesn't really do much. I mean, Gandalf shows up and he and he has some some lines. And I think I think Tolkien mentions that he's um that he's next to Bilbo on the ground like trying to work up a up a spell but like it it, it doesn't mention him calling down lightning or anything. Gandalf just kind of has to be there. I mean things are going wrong so Gandalf has to be there. Oh yeah, Gandalf, you know, masterminded the whole situation in the first place. Mhm. Mhm. Well, and an, another thing I've always kind of been unclear on uh, just from not having done the reading recently enough. Did he just show up there fresh from getting rid of the necromancer? Yeah, we don't we don't even hear about the the necromancer <laughs> yeah. until the very last last chapter. Like I I think I think I think we we might have heard about the necromancer during during the conversation with 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 Bayorn okay. in the in the Bayorn chapter, but I don't I don't even even remember if that if that's true or not. I mean, Jackson made it a huge part of of the movie and it's it's definitely in in the book, but like the necromancer gets gets a line a stupid question. I sorry, it's been a while since I've read some of the more extraneous sources here. Was Soren being the necromancer actually from the original material, or is that one of Peter Jackson's add-ons? Uh, Reinterpretations, for lack of a better in term. In the appendix of the Lord of the Rings, uh, Tolkien says that the necromancer is or was Sauron. And I th- in fact, I think I think even even in the in the Council of of of, of Elrond, uh, Gandalf relates yeah. how. He and Saruman drove drove Sauron out of out of Mirkwood, where he was disguised as the necromancer. So that was that was not a Peter Jackson in, in invention, and I, I think I think making it a major part of the film was was not a mistake necessarily. I mean, you you, you needed to show what Gandalf was doing, and, and what Gandalf was doing was was very epic and very very awesome. Um, yeah, it's not like giant sandworms coming out and 
vomiting up orcs or anything. Right. So the impression that I've always gotten about the Necromancer is, you know, I visualize J.R.R. Tolkien like telling this story to his kids, mm -hmm. and one of them is like, well, what's Gandalf doing during this? Where is Gandalf? And uh, Tolkien just is he's he's trying to evade the question and eventually he just says oh there was a there was a necromancer gandalf was all fighting him well tell us about the necromancer i don't want to tell you about the necromancer <laughs> we're talking about bilbo <laughs> this is a story about bilbo uh, and then you know he just has to having having established that he later has to come up with a way to fit it in um but it's just it's just there to answer the question well what was gandalf doing that was so important well, and, and in, in the annotation I read, that there was one of those minor textual changes was during the return trip when he's talking to Elrond about the Necromancer having been banished. Uh, the original was, for many a long age, he will be gone. And the change was for the next, was basically for the next several years. So mm -hmm. he, he made a very subtle change to the conversation between Gandalf and Elrond to make it clear that the Necromancer won't be gone that long. And 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 Sauron was was already a a figure in Tolkien's mythology when he was he was writing writing the Hobbit. He he went through several different different names. He was he was known as Tevildo. At 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 one point he was he was a, he was a giant cat. But um, <laughs> I think, awesome. But I I think I think at at the point that that Tolkien is is writing this in the in the nineteen twenties. Sauron is is known as as either either Tu or or Thu, uh, Thu the Necromancer, and he lives on the on the Isle Isle of Werewolves, the same Isle that uh, Luthien finds finds him on in 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 her her story. So yeah, yeah, it's he, he's he, he's not in there in there by 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 mistake, and he's he's definitely the the character that would become. Sauron. So, it's 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 not a connection that that Tolkien made made later. It was it was it was made here. Yeah, and 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 it evolved as as he mm -hmm. was writing Lord of the Rings because that was mm -hmm. you know he he made he made minor edits to this to bring this in line. Right. I mean, Sauron was was originally like you know just 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 a a villain for the Baron and Luthien story, and he yeah. he became this this bigger bigger thing like like the ring like the ring itself really. Yeah, and that's that's just one of those little things about this that we talk about it. It's very interesting. It begins as a story for his children, mm -hmm. but it, it it almost feels like he finishes it for himself. Mm -hmm. And and that's I think that's part of how the story grows from being a a, a fairy story to being the epic. Is it, it it just it kept living in his head and getting more detailed and interesting to him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd argue that. Uh, Tolkien probably is the basis for pretty much all source books of gaming, ultimately. Because he just kept working on it and building on it as he kept working and times progressed. Yeah, I read a, a, a thing talking about the fact that he wrote some of his backstory for Middle-Earth, some of his mythology and, and, and language stuff while in the trenches during World War One, And I, I, I can only imagine that that was some form of maintenance of sanity mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's the you know he has to do something other than think about what's going on 100 yards that way mm -hmm. you you should absolutely read tolkien in the great war if you have not 
Yeah, I think I think I think one one of the biggest reasons that that Tolkien is is considered the author of the of the twentieth century is is that much of his his writing was shaped by the the Great War, and the Great War is what shaped most of the 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 twentieth century. So they just they just go hand hand in hand. And and also just the the very personal cost it had for him in terms of his friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he he lost all but one of his friends in and and the great war so all right well that's that's a very somber note um we've we've been we've been talking for for a while and i i, I gather we could we could we could go on on talking until until the sun come com, comes up but uh we we need to bring this show to a close at at some point does anyone have any further comments they, they would like to make about the the re, re, return journey the 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 necromancer bilbo's treasure anything anything in this in this final chapter i just want to say that the name of the dragon that i couldn't remember was cyan bloodbane nice uh, i like it i'm i'm sure there's there there's a metal band with that with that name somewhere oh probably if more not than there one. should be yeah mm-hmm <laughs> Are you actually are you any... sure that's 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 not not a World of Warcraft boss? <laughs> Isn't that I think that's Cyan Blood Axe. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, what Sorry. is it? Pick a color, pick a fluid, and pick a weapon of some sort? Yeah. <laughs> that's kinda awesome actually. Yeah, I now have a, a name for my next uh <laughs> character. Uh, Teal. Uh, you know, <laughs> Uh, magenta bile uh, <laughs> dagger sounds like a winner. Warhammer, <laughs> scimitar. Give it, make it, make it exotic. Lucerne hammer. <laughs> kukri. <laughs> oh, nice. Your kukri. <laughs> okay, so that's. <laughs> and uh, I need to go now for no reason that has anything to do with that pun. Aww. Aww. <laughs> All right, go, everyone, go to jeffwick.com and and read Jeff Wick and read Jeff Wickstrom's uh, stories. Bye, Jeff. Bye. Bye. See ya. Bye, Jeff. Okay. Well, there's one last thing I want to bring up, just because we're at the final parts of the story here. Is I would argue that for the first few editions of Dungeons and Dragons, uh-huh. how you got XP for treasure is based Ooh. on this book. Basically, the Hobbit, the whole thing of it is a treasure hunt that they usually end up bumbling their way up to the dragon at this point in order to get the treasure hoard. And it almost feels like it's almost poetic because as soon as they get the treasure's hoard, all the dwarves go up a level. They go from comic relief to warriors. Kind of. Okay, we, we really do have to bring this show to a, to a close. So, Chris, where on the web can people find find you? Well, they can find me at www.drevrpg.com. Bought the license earlier this year. I got my first six books out in the OGL, and I'm currently working on a fifth edition version, thanks to the OGL being out during the last month or so. Ooh, can we, can we find those on the on the GM's Guild? Working on that. Right now in the middle of building this stuff. Very of exciting. Of course, if you want to... Act, exactly. All right, uh, Jeremiah, where can people find you? Uh, I have a newly updated website, Jeremiah McCoy. Dot com and of course the basics of the game dot, uh, wordpress.com and I'm on YouTube uh, with the basics of the game 
All right, go check that out. Peter Foxhoven, where can people find you? I'm at cromcountthedead.com, and I update semi-frequently now, so that's good. The dead are piling up every day, so so go check that out. And lastly, Robert Wolf, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Wolf, W-O-L-F-E-R-J, and uh, in the comments section of CromCountTheDead and JeffWig.com and everybody else as soon as I can get over there. All right, Robert. Robert is is all over the the internet, and you should be too. I don't know what that means, but that's a good way to close the show. Good job, guys. Listeners, it has been my pleasure to bring you these three episodes on The Hobbit. It was a blast to record them for you. If you would like to add to our conversation, please send an email to the Tome Show at gmail.com. Put Appendix N in the subject line so that the Tome Show folks know to forward it right to me. We will be talking about The Lord of the Rings in future episodes, but that time is far off. If you're not a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien, we thank you for being patient with us during these episodes. Our next episode will wrap up our coverage of H.P. Lovecraft, featuring three stories, The Thing on the Doorstep, The Shadow Out of Time, and The Haunter of the Dark. Following that, we will discuss the final three Conan stories from Robert E. Howard, and these are Beyond the Black River, Shadows in Zambula, and Red Nails. Following these episodes, the Appendix N podcast will go on hiatus for a while. I can't say how long, but we will be back. And when we do, we will discuss stories by Fritz Leiber, L. Sprague de Camp, and Andre Norton, among others. I look forward to reading these stories and sharing our discussions with you. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 31, The Hobbit, by J.R.R. Tolkien, Part 3. Thanks for listening.